Hey everyone, Miguel here. As many of you know, August is my last month at Wharton Fintech. So I want to invite you to follow and subscribe to my next adventure, 21 Leaders, a weekly podcast where I will sit down with today's global leaders that will dominate the 21st century in fintech, business, and beyond. Join me and subscribe today in your favorite podcast app, 21 Leaders. And welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. In this episode, I sit down with Alex Tosic, partner at Lightspeed Ventures, a global multi-stage VC with over 10 billion in AUM, focused on accelerating disruptive innovations and trends in the enterprise and consumer sectors. They've backed some amazing companies, including Snap, Affirm, and Grubhub. Alex focuses on online marketplaces and co-leads Lightspeed's investment efforts in Latin America. He's also the author of the popular weekly newsletter, Drinking from the Firehose, in which he writes about recent trends in commerce, media, tech, climate, science, and pop culture. In this episode, we discuss Alex's story and why he decided to stop pursuing a PhD and left academia to join the tech investing world, the intersection of marketplaces and fintech, and why the payment technology is the motor oil that makes transactions flow smoothly for marketplaces, why in venture capital, it's very important to ask the best possible questions and pay close attention to the answers that reveal an underlying truth, early stage investing mistakes, and the importance of focus, lessons from several years of writing a successful newsletter, and just a lot more. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Alex Tosig. Well, Alex, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech podcast. Thrilled to have you here. Uh, Maybe, you know, we can get started by, first of all, hearing where are you calling from? Where are you today? Well, I'm in the Bay Area uh, in San Francisco. It's actually kind of rainy today. I I sort of feel fortunate that I'm not roasting in 100 degree weather like the rest of California. Although a lot of people are complaining about the rain, but I don't mind. California doesn't get a lot of rain, at least some parts of it. So you should take all the rain you can. That's one thing I've learned and never complain about rain when you get it here. (laughs) Yeah. And and by the way, uh, you tell me, but sounds like Sounds like San Francisco is very much alive and we should not be listening to Twitter folks. Well, yeah, I mean, tw- Twitter is not a substitute for real life in general, but I'd, I'd say that San Francisco has its problems. It's had problems for a long time. Um, those problems have certainly been magnified by the pandemic, but it's still, you know, a great place to be and a place I, I, I love. I love the city and, uh, and it is fun to see the ecosystem kind of coming back now that something like 80% of the city is vaccinated and everything's open again. So yeah, it's a really exciting time to be here, actually. That's awesome. I I look forward to visiting. I think I'll be there in September. Hopefully it's back to 100% by then. Uh, But but Alex, so 
Maybe um, tell us about your story, right? I mean, I know you have a very interesting story. You've been in, an investor for a while, but maybe we can go back to the beginning and just hear a bit about your background. Sure. Um, I guess it depends on how far back you want to go, but um, we can go back to college, perhaps. So um, perfect. <laughs> if that works. So for basically as long as I can remember as a kid, I, I wanted to be a scientist. And uh, when I went to college uh, at Harvard, majored in physics, and that really became the foundation for how I would think about business later. But at the time, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. Uh, I was just pursuing my, my interest, which was to learn about how the universe works. <laughs> I started my PhD at MIT in uh, materials engineering, which is kind of like somewhere in between physics and applied physics and chemistry. It, it's sort of this amalgam of all these things. And it was really during that time when I was working on my PhD that I decided I didn't want to do the science thing anymore. And I, I got kind of disillusioned with the, the impact that research can have on the world. Like there's obviously a, a lot you can do, but I remember when the, uh, the, the guy who, who named the Higgs boson <laughs> got his Nobel Prize, I think he was 74 years old or something like that. And it just, it just occurred to me that like, this is going to be a very, very long path to impact. And at the same time, there were people who I went to college with who had gone on to, you know, start Facebook or had gone and worked in Silicon Valley. And they were all having these very fast rocket ship careers. They seemed to be having a lot more impact than I was working in a laboratory. So that moment in time, I, I decided I was going to leave university and I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I needed to do something involving technology in the real world. And I had a few friends who, who had uh, started companies of their own at MIT and they had raised venture capital. And so that's how I learned what venture was, was through my friends who were starting these companies and raising money. And I said, that sounds really interesting. Like it's, it's, you get, you get to impact a lot of different types of businesses. You get to understand how technology is going to change the world. And I said, that sounds interesting to me. So let, let me see if I can go do that. So that I didn't really know much about it other than that. I applied to business school on a lark, ended up getting into HBS. I did not get into Wharton. Um, so <laughs> no comment. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know can't have it all. Um, and uh, ended up going to business school because I felt like that would be a good way to transition out of academia into something that was more practical. And thanks to being at HBS, was able to get internships in venture and also a full-time job, you know, in, in venture. And, you know, when I got in, it was 2009. And so we were at the depths of the financial crisis. So it was felt, it was like a very different time. But, you know, being at, um, at a, I was at a firm called Highland Capital in Boston. It was a good place to learn the business. Um, I got to work for one of the founders there and uh, was kind of his associate for a number of years. We worked on a lot of really interesting businesses. Some of them ended up going public. Some of them ended up not working out. Some of them ended up being long, twisted rows, walks in the woods that ended up going well at the end of the day. So I got to see all the different paths that a startup can go down and really learn from someone who it was really incredible at his job and also was a great mentor to me. So I felt very fortunate. I then moved out to the West Coast in 2012 to help build the West Coast office for that firm. Was involved in our original investment in ThreadUp, which was started by a business school classmate of mine. So that was kind of fun. And um, that company went public a few months ago. So we have like a nice piece of evidence of like the journey can be long, but can be very rewarding if you're there from the beginning um, or close to the beginning. And so with that investment, started to really get interested in online marketplaces. And that's basically been what I've been doing for the last decade-ish in venture is really sort of 
transactional commerce businesses that are networked online. And um, joined Lightspeed in 2016 to do more of that, working with um, my partner, Jeremy Liu, found me and brought me in. And we, to, you know, together along with uh, Nicole and Mercedes, have built out a consumer portfolio at Lightspeed. And um, Lightspeed is a multi-stage, multi-geo, multi-sector firm. We're one of the largest venture firms globally. Uh, we manage over $10 billion in committed capital. And we invest in not only in the U.S., but also in India and China and Southeast Asia, Europe, and now LATAM, actually, which is something you and I were talking about before we started recording. Um, we've actually made our, our first couple LATAM investments this year. So we will invest really anywhere in the world. And we, are, we, we tend to be a very focused, thematic firm. So each of us will take a couple themes at a time, go very, very deep. And then we are very collaborative. So when themes cross over, we partner with other individuals at the firm to build the right deal team to support a company. So I, as I said, most of what I've done is marketplaces. So I've, I've led our investments in companies like Zola, uh, Fair, OutSchool, in uh, Bogota, uh, Frubana, which is a cool one. Yeah, of course. And some e-commerce as well. So companies like Daily Harvest, for example. Yeah, that's what I've been, that's what I've been up to. Yeah, no, it's super exciting. And I think it's a, you're a very relevant guest to have on this podcast because just the intersection of fintech and, and marketplaces, I think, becomes more evident every day. Maybe a, a few years it wasn't as evident, right? But uh, now there's no doubt. And since we're talking a little bit about Latin America and Frubana, right? And a company like Rappi, which I know is very close to Frubana, mm -hmm. they started purely as a as a marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. But but now they are very fast becoming more and more a fintech company every day, mm -hmm. right? So for, from your point of view, um, how do you think about that intersection, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure fintech is part of the conversation for you in, in every opportunity. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I, it's funny because uh, when you reach out to me for this, uh, you know, I said, well, I don't really, I'm not really a fintech investor. It's not how I think about what I do. I like to invest in networked commerce companies. But as you said, increasingly, so many of these companies have fintech at their core. And it's often something we're looking for now. You know, I, as a side note, I, I write a, a newsletter called uh, Drinking from the Firehose. You can check it out at firehose.vc. And a few months ago, I wrote this piece. The title was Payment Tech is Motor Oil. I don't think it was a very good title. But the, the point I was trying to make is essentially that, you know, the, the engine is the marketplace. But the thing that lubricates it is financial services and fintech. And this is a trend that goes back a long way, actually. It goes back to eBay and PayPal, you know, even before those two companies were married together in a merger, PayPal was essentially facilitating transactions on eBay. And eBay was the dominant use case for PayPal. And so the, that's why the merger commenced. And then inside of the company, it sort of became that thing that, that made the transactions flow more smoothly. Because if you can't transact with other people, then the marketplace just has too much friction and it slows down. So marketplaces, like if you had to pick one thing that mattered in a marketplace, it's really liquidity. If I want to go make a transaction, how easily can I make that transaction right now? And payment tech greases the skids for those, for those transactions. But the interesting thing is once those startups take off and they become important, they often become bigger than the marketplace themselves because it turns out money has gravity. So if you start to actually store value for sellers or for buyers in a marketplace, you can do a lot more with that. There's also a question of what you can do with the data. So if you understand 
how much someone has in a digital wallet, well, that, that's collateral for other things, for, for example, or you understand what their purchase patterns are, maybe even understand what their purchase patterns are outside the platform because they're using that money for other things, right? So the sort of gravity of money enables you to sort of extend a lot of the use cases of the platform. So it shouldn't really surprise you that most marketplaces either have launched or will launch some sort of digital payments product. You could go to China and look at Alibaba um, with you know Alipay's escrow service, which started in 2004 and has now grown to power a lot more things in their marketplace and outside the marketplace. You could look at you know Mercado Libre and their uh, Mercado Pago product. It's, it's something like a third of their transaction volume now, and it also supports a lot of off-platform transactions. You could look at C in Southeast Asia, something like 70% of that region's population is unbanked or underbanked. C money's now grown to like 30% of gross orders, uh, probably more at this point. So I think you're just going to see this, this play out more and more, in particular in developing markets where the payment options are not as pervasive, where you do have huge amounts of underbanked people, their first bank account might be through a marketplace. Yeah. And, and so when, when you're making an investment, right, how do you think about that angle, because there's also the option of of partnering, right? Uh, you you might want to stick to being just a marketplace and partner with a fintech that offers that motor oil. How do you think about that? And and you know maybe we can relate that to your to your investing approach. Well, I, I think you have to figure out what's really strategic to you as a business. For a lot of marketplaces, the the thing that they hold dear is really the the transaction data. So, it's, for example, at, at FAIR, which is a company I'm, I'm involved with at Lightspeed, we have such incredible data on what retailers are buying for their stores. We can look at, you know, if, you, if you're a store in Omaha, Nebraska, and you're another store in you know, Boise, Idaho, like we can find lookalike stores and figure out what those stores should be buying because the other one bought uh, a similar brand or a similar product and sold through in the other store. So that data can power lending, factoring, all sorts of different payments applications. And you don't necessarily want that, that data sitting in a third party. Like that's, that's sort of the special sauce. It would be equivalent to Facebook taking its, you know, targeting, ad targeting algorithm and like lending that out to other people to build stuff on top of. It's probably not the right move given that Facebook itself is the best company to monetize that data. Well, you know, the, way, the best way for FAIR to monetize that data is by selling more stuff to more merchants that they should buy, right? So I, I think that there's this natural data gravity in addition to money gravity, and you want to do things in-house. Now, that being said, there's all sorts of enabling technologies that you can use to then build that stack. I don't think it makes sense for every company, every marketplace company, for, per se, to build out their own payment stack. That doesn't need to be core competency. The core competency is really the operations of that marketplace. So, you know, we, we've backed companies like, like Phoenix, for example, that have built their, you know, the ability for you to become your own payment facilitator or, or Sinterra. That, yeah, Richie uh, was a former podcast guest, by the way. Oh, good, 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 good. Uh, or, you know, Sinterra, which, which is sort of a banking platform as a service. So um, we, we think there's going to be a lot of great building blocks that come into these types of businesses. But ultimately, you should be operating it yourself if you think it's strategic. Understood, understood. And and so since you've been doing this for a while, one thing that caught my eye when preparing for this podcast is that 
you've publicly said that you're always trying to get better at asking the best possible question and listening very hard to the answer, right? Which, which makes sense because in, in VC, relationships and, and just conversations with other people are extremely important, an important part of the job. But how do you actually get to do that, right? Have you developed some, some techniques over the years? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, you know, as strange as it sounds, studying physics really taught me how to do this. Um, I think Einstein said if he was given an hour to do a problem that his life depended on, he would take the first 40 minutes studying it, the next 15 minutes reviewing it, and five minutes solving it. So it, it's very much instilled into you when you do physics that the first thing you do is figure out what the right question is to ask because it makes answering, the, answering it ultimately that much easier. The other thing you learn when you do physics is that there's like the underlying phenomena that govern the universe. There's this almost this like religious faith for physicists that it's actually simple, that there's beauty and elegance underneath everything, that life can seem very complex, but like at the atomic level or the subatomic level, it's very simple. You know, there's only 17 fundamental particles in the universe. There's only four forces in the universe. And so the deeper you dig, the simpler your explanation should get. Good questions are the ones that should reveal those underlying truths. That's what it means to, I think, ask a good question. It's one that reveals an underlying truth. And the last thing is, uh, the difference between physics and math is physicists don't need to be totally right. They need to be right with like the relevant approximations, right? I, I used to have a physics teacher who said to me, he's like, how right do I need to be? Well, just show me the size of your ruler and I'll tell you how right I need to be. So when you ask a question, like you don't need to understand everything. You just need to like know enough essentially to, to, to solve the problem. It's those types of truths you're looking for. You don't need to understand every little bit of it. So when I take that and I translate that into a business context, it really starts with you just being really, really curious about what's going on. I, you know, I come into every meeting looking for a really interesting insight. And I really want to understand what's going on in the business, especially when you see something anomalous. The other thing that you realize is very quickly after you do this job for a while is that you know, founders should know significantly more than you do as an investor. There's this like persistent myth that gets promulgated by these cult of personality individuals that VCs are like these soothsayers and they know stuff that other people don't. I mean, the reality is in private conversations, if you talk to some of these great investors, they'll tell you they, they actually know very little. And what makes them good is that they just know how to listen really well. I can also tell you if the founder doesn't have the insight, you're not going to come up with the insight. <laughs> so you got to be really good at listening because if you think you know more than they do, you're almost certainly wrong. You also have to just listen uh, very hard. I, I think the founders often, because they operate in this world where they just do one thing and they've been doing it for years, sometimes the insights aren't that unusual to them. I'm reminded of like this uh, old fable for, that David Foster Wallace told in a really famous uh, commencement address years ago, uh, where he says there are these two young fish that are swimming and an older fish swims by and goes, hey, how's the water? And, this, and the little fish swim by and they go, what the hell is water? <laughs> you know, and, and the, whole, the whole point is that like, it's not that we're older or wiser. It's just that, you know, we have a broader context and we can see things that they can't see because of that context. We're, we're like a mile wide and an inch deep. They're like an inch wide and a mile deep. 
So when we can bring that context to something, we, we can sometimes see an insight and go, that's really special. And those are the times you want to just run at something. So it all comes from just being really curious and just seeking some underlying truth that, un- that most people don't understand. It, it reminds me a lot of, of uh, my interview with Nima I'm sorry, from Bland, and he was talking about the relationship with VCs as a founder, and that's exactly what he said that you have to pay attention to, is that they have a different context mm-hmm. as the founders, right? They, they can see a broader picture, whereas as a founder, you're, like you said, a mile deep. Uh, so that's, that's super interesting. And since you've been doing this for a while, I imagine that you must have had some, some early mistakes, you, some lessons learned. Right. I think it'll be super interesting to learn about those. Yeah, a lot of mistakes. <laughs> uh, they, seem to, they seem to compound lately as everything's going really well. <laughs> yeah, and most, of the, most of the mistakes are companies that, you know, you either didn't pursue aggressively or passed on that ended up doing really well. I mean, those are the things that VCs really kick themselves for. It's not so much the companies that didn't work out because that's part of it. One lesson I've learned is that the more focused I am, the better results I produce. I think that's because focus increases my chances of understanding something special about the founder or the market opportunity or the product before others. And that's because the reality is VC is a very fast paced job. You know, every deck that comes in might get one to two minutes of review before you decide you're going to dig in on it. And so the chances that someone, if they're not focused on an area or they haven't had the prior pattern recognition in a category or they're not developing some sort of theme that they're going to overlook the the thing that's counterintuitive. Or actually, it's actually pretty high. So if you come to a business where something's really up your alley, you have a disproportionately high chance of seeing the thing that others might miss. So I think that's that's one key. Is that, that's why I personally believe the focus is incredibly important for, for the way I invest, at least. I mean, maybe other people figure out a different way, but that's how I invest. The other thing is that I you know it's really an insight about people. You know, the best operators that I've worked with in my career and also ones where I wanted to work but I didn't get a chance to work with has similar characteristics in, in retrospect. One is incredible attention to detail. Another is clarity of, of vision from a very early stage. That vision often doesn't really change, actually. It's sort of locked in and very clear to, to everyone, even if people have trouble believing in it. The third is just incredible communication skills. The ability to, to get people, not only to tell a story, but get people excited about a story, to intrigue people. It, it helps with fundraising, it helps with recruiting, it helps with everything. The fourth is, is growth mindset. And this is because, I mean, almost every founder I've ever worked with was a first-time founder. And the ability to be a CEO and founder and, and continue to grow and take your company public eventually, you know, it requires you to just constantly be learning new skills and then also knowing when it's time to transfer a task to someone else. And that just requires an incredible amount of belief in your ability to grow and learn new things. And so it, that's really important. Fixed mindsets are not, don't make great startup founders. And the last is just grit, determination, the pure ability to, to run through walls and push through difficulty. I can't tell you the horrible situations that I've seen founders run into over the years. And, and it's really remarkable to see them push through. I mean, COVID's been a incredible um, crucible for a lot of companies. And it's been interesting to see which CEOs have 
really grown as a result of those challenges and which ones have have shrunk away. I think the really great ones grow in the face of a challenge. So I'm constantly just pattern matching on those criteria for founders. That's just like kind of what I've come down to. And I don't know if that's if those criteria are the same for everyone, because the types of businesses I invest in are typically very low margin you know, businesses, at least when they start. And so when you're in a low margin business, every penny counts. You need that attention to detail. You need to be able to tell a story really well. If you're doing a, like a software business that's 90% margin, like maybe you don't need to be as you don't need to be following your AWS costs as aggressively. But you know, in in a business like a like a Fruvana, for example, or you know, or even Fair, like every penny counts. The last thing I say, you know, just essentially, every mistake I've probably made has been either not dropping everything fast enough and just pursuing the one company that I'm interested in. So being spread too thin, or it's been not appreciating at the time that the thing that was anomalous would continue into the future. One company that I, that I think a lot about lately is, is uh, GoPuff. <laughs> I remember spending time with those guys back in the day and being very impressed with, with their hustle and their, their traction they've seen and a very different model than anything else that I'd seen. And one thing that I saw was anomalous is their um, deliveries per hour for their, their drivers was just significantly higher than the other food delivery companies. And I kind of chalked it up at the time to the fact that a lot of it was college campuses where you have very densely packed you know, users, you have a lot of the deliveries are late at night when there's not a lot of traffic. So like they had a lot of sort of structural advantages in the market they were serving that would have driven superior unit economics. And my instinct was that like that wouldn't continue as they scaled to the rest of the country. Apparently it has. <laughs> so, so, um, so shame on me for not believing in it. But that's the kind of those are the kind of mistakes that really I kick myself for because I saw what was anomalous, but I just didn't believe it was going to continue. And um, oftentimes those are the things that really matter. And so marketplaces, that is a broad area, you know, segment of the of the GDP, I guess. Going back to the focus point at the very beginning, right? Maybe taking a deeper dive. What is your process internally within the company, within your team, or also as an individual to consistently decide what areas to, to focus in, right? What thesis to build? Do, do you have a process around that? Uh, I would say the process is a lot more organic than, than, um, than a didactic, like top-down this year, we're going to invest in banking as a service or something. Like We like to have a firm where we have a lot of investors who have different interest areas, and they organically discover or decide what they want to work on. And then we, we help them figure out what companies to invest in in the category. So I don't like to be too prescriptive with how the team decides what they're going to do. I think the best investors are actually a little entrepreneurial themselves and they go figure stuff out. And we have to, as a, as a firm, empower them to go find great companies along those themes while giving them guidance and guardrails and all, all those kind of things. So I would say that my own personal investment themes and how I built them, everything like connects to everything else is how I'd say it. So, you know, when I invested in ThreadUp at my old firm, like one of the things that that I thought was pretty anomalous about the way they ran their business was that they were essentially building a managed marketplace where they would kind of touch inventory, 
but they were able to manage the payment flow such that there wasn't a big cash impact of the inventory because how they balanced both sides of the marketplace in terms of when they paid out and when they collected cash. That was sort of an interesting insight that I didn't feel like a lot of people knew about because people always assumed that if you touched inventory, you would have to hold inventory for a lot of time and it would suck up a lot of cash flow. That actually wasn't the case at ThreadUp. And I don't, I still don't think it's the case. So when I saw Zola and I saw the, uh, they were building a, a registry product for the wedding category and they had this model where they would accept the cash from, from the guests that were buying the gift for couples, but they would be able to then hold that cash for months before the couple actually requested the gift to be shipped. So they had this, this float that was pretty significant. And I said to myself, this reminds me a little bit of how ThreadUp was able to manage the cash flow to take something that previously would have been thought of as very inventory intensive and make it not inventory intensive and therefore have the ability to scale faster. And that was one of the reasons I got excited about Zola at the end of the day, because I saw this, this linkage. And so that got me thinking a lot more about sort of how marketplaces can, can kind of like use drop shipping and other types of you know, modern e-commerce infrastructure to be able to take away some of the capital intensity. And um, you know, when we saw FAIR, that, that theme came back to me because FAIR was able to drop ship everything from brands to, to the stores. They, they didn't rely on distributors at all. And um, while at the time, FAIR's working capital cycle, because they, they give net 60 payment terms to their, to their vendors, they were taking on a lot of that risk. Over time, they were able to actually manage that risk down to the point where, where that doesn't consume a lot of cash anymore. So that sort of focusing on the cash flow cycle of marketplaces has been like a theme that's been persistent for me as an investor for almost a decade now. And it's something I've taken across a lot of different businesses. I didn't sit down one day and say, that's something I'm going to look for. But it, it, it became a thing that I continue to look for because I continue to see it be a lever you can pull. I'll give you one other example that's just different, which is how we thought about Latin America. So I met Simone at Rappi in like 2016. It was like my first year at Lightspeed. I hadn't, I hadn't even done a deal yet at Lightspeed. And um, I remember being really impressed by him and the business was, was doing really well. And I, I, I said to myself, I can't do my first investment at Lightspeed in a company based in, I don't even think it was Bogota, I think it was Medellin. <laughs> like it was just, it was just too, it was too, like I, I needed to like take baby steps, you know, as I did my first few investments at the firm. And so, uh, but I remember being really blown away by, by him and the business. And I had this thing in my head that like Latin America is changing. Like the tech scene is really ascendant. And I met Fabian from Furbana a few years later. And I remember thinking the same thing. It was like, man, these companies are doing so well. And I really like all these founders and like what's going on in LATAM. And so, but that time I said, we should actually look at this proactively. That was in 2019. So Mercedes, my partner Mercedes and I spent a year, year and a half looking at all sorts of companies in Latin America. We kind of educated our group internally at the end of the year said, we want to make a few investments in the region because we think it's going to be the next big rising region. It's already like the fastest growing e-commerce market in the world. It has the GDP of of China, but it's like e-commerce is growing faster. So all, all the sort of macro stats that you're familiar with. And so then we we decided in starting in 2021, we were going to make investments and we made four investments in the first couple quarters. And they've been largely companies we met over that last year and a half. So we were able to move very quickly because we knew exactly what we wanted to do. 
So you have sort of two different examples of how it can work there. You have one where you're sort of looking for this emerging theme. As you invest, you continue to double down on what you've seen work. And then on the other side, you can sort of start from the beginning and say, I have this intuition that something's happening. Let's be really thoughtful about how we approach it and take, you know, take a while to sort of decide how you want to invest, but then move really quickly once you make the decision. I love that. Those are, those are amazing examples. And first one kind of reminds me of, I don't know if this even makes sense, but learning a language, once you, once you've learned three, the fourth one is actually easier, you know, <laughs> because you, you, you draw a lot of parallels from the other languages you've learned. And uh, maybe it's not intuitive. This from a guy who speaks Russian and Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine either one of those was easy to learn, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> Uh, so, Alex, I, you know, we, we have a, a few minutes left, but before we go, I have a lot of empathy for people who do media, who people who have other podcasts or other newsletters. And that's your case. You have a very su successful newsletter, Drinking from the Firehose. So um, let's let's hear about that. Right. Let's, let's hear about the. Uh, the creative process, right? Why do you do it? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, maybe tell us how, how does it make you feel to, to write a newsletter? Because by the way, it's not easy. <laughs> it, it's not easy. I, I don't know who said this quote, but I often think about it. It's like, I detest writing, but I love having written. That's how I feel about my newsletter. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible feeling when you're done. But the, the process of writing it is really painful for me. I don't think I'm a naturally, I say this with all, not any false modesty, I, I don't believe I'm a naturally talented writer. I've had to just do it over and over and over again to sort of learn how to do it and and get feedback and and my users or subscribers give me feedback all the time, so that's helpful. But I started it four, four plus years ago as a way to have a alternative to the social media platforms of the day to be able to express myself. I had been running different blogs and Twitter accounts and stuff for, for years. Um, basically the whole time I've been an investor, I've been writing, but I, I'd never done something that consistently before. And I, I just decided that I wanted to, the ability to speak directly to the people who were interested in what I had to say, not mediated by, by some other platform and do it in long form. The benefits to it, obviously there's some sort of, you know, VC branding like benefit to it, but that's not why I do it. I do it first because it helps me clarify my thinking. You know, instead of writing like internal white papers or doing PowerPoint presentations about the stuff I'm interested in, I just write a newsletter post about it. And it forces me to sort of have public criticism pointed at the thing that I'm interested in. And that sharpens my thinking. So that's the first use case for it. The second is that when I had kids, I realized that the thing I was doing for my job, which was I would go out every night. I'd be networking my butt off all the time. I just wasn't going to be able to do that in the same way anymore and take care of two young kids at home. And so I decided that I needed to have a more scalable way to stay in touch with people. And the newsletter is great for that. The thing, something about a newsletter is like where you get it from someone, you feel like they're almost talking to you. It's in your inbox. It's, a more, it's more personal than just a tweet that goes out into the ether. Yeah. And people feel that it's possible to respond back. Yeah. Right. And they often do. It's okay. I, I get people all the time who I haven't spoken to in a while who say, hey, I just want to say I really thought this point was interesting or, hey, I disagree with this. And it starts a discussion. And my ability to stay on top of my network now has scaled orders of magnitude 
past where it was before, the sacrifice I make is I, you know, I work all Sunday. <laughs> Sunday is a work day for me. It's when I write usually, but I've decided that it's worth it because it enables me to stay in touch with all these different people and it helps me polish my my thinking, which ultimately at the end of the day determines where I invest money. So it's a uh, part of the process for me. Love it. I, I'm going to subscribe right after this this call. <laughs> well, at least at least I got one new subscriber. Yes. <laughs> and we'll we'll definitely link it on the show notes. Uh, well, listen, Alex, uh, a real pleasure having you here. Before we let you go, any any favorite hobbies? Uh, do you have time for <laughs> hobbies these days? I was going to say, I don't really have time for hobbies anymore. I mean, maybe when my kids are older, I'll have time between work and, and childcare. I did start one, doing one thing during the pandemic, which is that I, I got into baking. Um, I've always liked baking, but but now I'm really into it. And I've made it sort of like a weekly thing. It's one of those fun activities. You can do it with your kids. So it, it's kind of interactive. And so, and then at the end of the day, you have something delicious to, to eat. So um if you looked at my private Facebook feed, it would be full of pastries and 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 souffles and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, famous cookies. Love it. <laughs> well, amazing. Listen, thrilled, thrilled to have you here. Uh, I learned a ton. No doubt the audience will enjoy this conversation. And you know, you're you're now a, a friend of Wharton. I know you you went to a different school. I won't name, but uh, <laughs> you're still. It's a good consolation prize, not getting into Wharton. At least I can go on the Wharton You got in some other way. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Amazing. Thank you, Alex. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.